morning you're listening to Subject ACT on 2XXFM 98.3 for local and current affairs from an informed and curious perspective. Autumn is here, the fashion, hot toddies on the horizon and elections looming everywhere. My name is Becca Postorino. It's Monday the 4th of April. Welcome to the program. As we move into an election year, federally and in the ACT, we explore some issues that will no doubt impact our local and broader community. The plight of refugees and international aid. With over $200 million slashed from international aid from the federal budget, the question arises, is this reflective of Australian values? Megan Chisholm, a Canberra-based humanitarian aid worker who I met with late last year, discusses her role in the sector, specifically the Syrian crisis. Megan describes the experiences of those enduring conflict and fleeing for their lives. I also talk with Hazara refugee Ishmael Hussani, who I met with late last year. He shares his personal story from asylum seeker in Afghanistan to refugee now living and studying in Canberra. Finally, I meet with inspiring young advocate Zoe Knight, who represents the voice of local youth regarding the significance of international aid and what it means for the Australian future to invest in social capital. Stay with us on 2XXFM 98.3, Subject ACT. This morning we're talking to Megan Chisholm, humanitarian aid worker from Canberra. Good morning, Megan. Good morning. What is your role as a humanitarian aid worker in non-profit organisation management? So I've been a humanitarian aid worker for over 15 years. So my role is to go into countries affected by crises, whether that's a natural disaster or a war, and help to provide the people affected by that crisis with basic life-saving assistance. So that might be shelter or water and sanitation, or it might be uh, food or help keep them safe and keep them alive after they've been affected by a crisis. What is at the core of the Syrian crisis specifically, just briefly? The Syrian crisis is a war that started in 2011. So, you know, it's been going on for over four and a half years, coming up to five years. It's one of the most devastating humanitarian crises in the world today and and that we've seen in many years. There are over 20 million people affected. There's nearly four and a half million people have been made refugees, which means they've had to leave the country to seek shelter in neighbouring countries. And on top of that, there are, is an untold number, at least six or seven million who have been displaced internally, but possibly a lot more. Uh, so they're people who've been forced to leave their homes but haven't been able to cross a border and they're trapped inside the war zone. There's also hundreds of thousands of people in areas that we would call besieged areas So they're trapped in an area that's under intense fighting and they can't get out and you can't get services in, they can't get out. So, you know, the Syrian crisis is a war which has devastated the lives of millions and millions and millions of people. It's meant that children are out of school. It's meant that people have, many, many people have died. We think the number is well over 200,000 by now. But to be honest, people lost count quite some time ago and people have, have lost their homes, their shelter, their water supply systems have been destroyed their crops have failed uh, they have no food if they're if they're stuck in these areas and for those who have managed to get out of the country they're trying to find safety and they're trying to survive in in other countries and to get assistance from others as refugees in your experience in managing humanitarian preparedness and response operations what is unique to the syrian crisis there's a lot of complexity in the syrian crisis it's a very 
very complex war and a conflict which has been going on for a really long time and, and so far the world has failed to find a resolution. And what we do desperately need is the world to find a peaceful resolution to the conflict. That complexity means that the scale of the crisis is, is massive. It also means that it's very difficult for humanitarian aid agencies to respond because it's so dangerous in Syria. And it's it's dangerous for many reasons, but obviously it's a very intense war zone in Syria. So getting into Syria, getting relief into Syria and reaching all those people who are in desperate need is really, really difficult. The other thing that makes it really significant is the size of the refugee population. So the refugee flows coming out of Syria are, you know, the largest in the world. Millions, it's millions over, you know, 4.3 or 4.5 million who are refugees living living in neighbouring countries and now we're seeing obviously going to Europe or coming to Australia and elsewhere. That's a really huge refugee crisis. And to put it in perspective, you've got... In Lebanon, over 25% of, of the Lebanese population now is made up of refugees because mm. there's so many. You've got populations like the size of Sydney. Imagine the entire population of Sydney have now become refugees. So it's a really massive scale refugee mm. crisis. So you've got a very complex situation, very dangerous and unsafe for aid workers to be able to enter and provide assistance, and then a massive flow of refugees and movement beyond borders to mm. many, many different countries. Have you been to Syria or neighbouring Lebanon as a humanitarian aid worker. What do you see on the ground when you're there? I was actually in Turkey um, and in Turkey there's a lot of refugees in Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan um, and and refugees going as far as Yemen. So there's lots of refugees in lots of different countries and I was on the ground in Turkey and met with refugee women who Mm. had, had fled and were looking for safety you know, I remember meeting meeting with this one woman who was pregnant with twins and she was, you know, she was nine months pregnant, kind of ready to drop and just didn't know what her future held, mm. where she could get safety. She was uh, had no income. Was she with her family? Was she with her husband? No, so often often husbands have, have tried to get the children or the, or the wife mm-hmm. try to get them sent out and maybe they stay home to try and protect their property or to try and keep the crop going or mm-hmm. to try and earn an income so they've got some money. So often you find women and children by themselves trying mm-hmm. to flee for safety. Increasingly also see men leaving now as well because it is so dangerous, but you'll often see women and children by themselves. When I met that pregnant woman, she was she was by herself and she was looking to find some way she could earn an income. So mm. the refugees that end up in, in Turkey, in Jordan and Lebanon, they're not allowed to work. So they go and they end up living in other countries, in other cities, but they're not permitted by the government to work. So how do they survive? They've already lost everything. They've had to leave everything behind when they've fled their homes for safety, often under the most treacherous circumstances. And then they arrive in a big city and they have to fend for themselves because they're not allowed to work and earn an income. So, you know, those those refugees are very dependent on aid from aid organisations. So when I was in the region, I also worked in Jordan as well. I worked in Lebanon previously, but not with the Syrian crisis, but um, I was working with Care Australia. And so Care Australia was working with refugees who were living in the urban centres in uh, in Turkey, in Lebanon and, and in Jordan to provide them with uh, access to services, to tell them where they could get children into schools, mm. uh, where they could get health support. And then we would provide emergency We'd provide emergency cash to people because mm. often that's what people need most. Yeah. And what they would use it for would be to um, for their medical 
medical emergencies yes. or to pay rent because suddenly the rents are really high because there's this mm. massive influx of refugees so the rents go up and people need to pay rent so we would give them cash to help them uh, pay for those emergency things as well as uh, material things like blankets mm. and bedding uh, kitchen supplies and that kind of thing and mm. you know I remember meeting another woman um that who, whose baby had 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 been born but had a lot of complications and she wasn't able to leave the hospital with her new baby until the hospital bill was paid mm. so so care australia paid the hospital bill mm. as part of that emergency cash assistance so that her baby you know had received the treatment it needed and she was able to leave hospital with that baby how should canberra as a community be responding to the syrian crisis look Canberra as a community can can support provision of assistance to Syrian refugees and and where possible to people inside Syria by supporting humanitarian agencies that are responding on the ground. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Care Australia is who I worked for, so mm-hmm. people can make a donation to Care Australia, mm-hmm. for example. They can go to www.care.org.au mm-hmm. and make a donation and that's the best way to assist if you want to assist people in the region who are affected by the crisis and mm-hmm. and care uses that money to provide that life-saving assistance to mm-hmm. people you know obviously there's going to be um you know there's there are syrian refugees in our mm-hmm. community and there will be syrian refugees coming to our community mm-hmm. and i think that it's a really important thing for us as australians also to think about how we welcome and support mm-hmm. people in our community and provide them that place of safety that they so desperately need and and help them to recover and build a new life. Megan, thank you so much for your time. I've really appreciated you coming into the studio and chatting to us about your experiences. Thank you. Thank you. Hazara refugee Ishmael Hussani has been living in Canberra since 2012. Where is your home country and what brought you to Australia? Um, My home country is Afghanistan. And basically, I came to Australia because of persecution and systematic genocide of my people. Is this the Hazara people that you're talking of? Ah, uh, yeah. Hazaras are persecuted on daily basis. Uh, like we are, we are get killed because of our um, religion and because of our identity. Like ethnically, we are Hazara, so. We are identifiable, so they they kill us on our identity and as well our religion, religious purposes. So, why is Hazara targeted? Um, Hazaras are normally they are they belong to Shiite Islam, and and as well our physical appearance is different from the others. We have kind of uh, Mongolian. Mm-hmm. like faces and we are easy identify identifiable people they mm-hmm. identify us and we are vulnerable we don't have borders we don't have um massive supports from outside world so we are easy target for them uh not predominantly afghanistan is sunni muslim but they are uh, not hostile not all of them hostile to the azaras but there are certain groups working against shiites but Predominantly, they are silent on our killing. Seven Hazaras were beheaded mm-hmm. by the group ISIS in Afghanistan, okay. and among among the killed ones, uh, there was nine-year-old girl. And Hazaras, they did massive protests in the, on the streets of Kabul in front of the uh, parliament house. 
That's truly terrifying to our ears. We can't understand that situation in Australia, Ishmael. Are asylum seekers still travelling by boat, Ishmael? Uh, to my knowledge, no, they are not travelling by boat to Australia uh, because they have sealed the border. They, they send asylum seekers to third world, uh, to another country, to offshore detention centres like Papua New Guinea or uh, Nauru. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. in, in one way, would you say the problem of border protection on the waters has been resolved? It is not resolved. Uh, people are coming to Indonesia to be proceed uh, to get their claims proceed for uh, uh, for resettlement in Australia, but. But Australia, Australians, uh, they have now stopped their intake, refugee intake from Indonesia as well. Whoever comes to Indonesia uh, after July of 2014, they will not going to take any uh, refugee from Indonesia. So people are still desperate to come to Australia, but uh, there are better ways to, to, to bring refugees to Australia, but just uh, shutting down or closing the border is not the way to, we mm. can say that they have resettled the way. Uh, mm. Yeah. So, with respect to your situation, understanding the differences between an asylum seeker and a refugee, a refugee has been approved status um, for permanent re- residency in Australia. An asylum seeker um, may be living in Australia, but is applying for refugee status. Yes. Um, uh, asylum seekers, well, those just to apply for uh, for a claim, uh, to, to be recognised as a refugee, and 90% of asylum seekers, they are recognised as a refugee here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was recognised as a refugee in 2012. I got my permanent residency in 2012. So how how did you come to Australia? How did you travel here? I travelled to Australia by boat. By uh, boat? I ar- yeah. I arrived in Australia in 2011, the 30th of, uh, 30th of May. Um, and afterwards, I was transferred to Christmas Island and then uh, Darwin Detention Centre. And then I was moved uh, to uh, Canberra Community Detention Centre. Since then, I've... I'm living here in Canberra. That's quite a that's quite a process for a human being that's actually now being recognised as a yeah, refugee. That was, that was a lengthy uh, lengthy process to be recognised as a refugee. There are security checks, happens interviews, uh, happens to be recognised as a refugee. Where were you? When you got on the boat, um, I was in Pakistan, mm-hmm. uh, and I took this perilous journey from Indonesia. And you call it a perilous journey. How long did it take you? It was eight nights and eight days on a leaky boat. We were about uh, fifty-six, uh, fifty-two asylum seekers with four uh, boat uh, crews. There were four Indonesian uh, crews. 
and we were 52 asylum seekers from different countries from Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran. So we arrived to Ashmore Ref and then they took the border security guys, they took us to Christmas Island. What made you get on that boat? It, it was hard for me to stay in Indonesia. Already there were too many people uh, were in the queue to get processed to, to be recognized refugees. And as well, I have a family, my, my sister and my mom, they are living in, uh, in Kuwaita and they are in a very uh, a hostile situation. They're, they are confined. They're living in, in, a, in Afghanistan? Uh, they are in Pakistan. As a They're refugee. in Pakistan. Uh, for me, I had no other option except taking the boat to come to Australia because I not only came for myself, I came for my family mm-hmm. to, to provide them a safe future. Mm-hmm. That was the only thing that I took this uh, perilous journey. So your sister and your mum, do you have contact with them? Yes, I do have contact with them. I talk to them almost every night. Do you think they'll be able to come to Australia? Well, not now, because I have to be a an Australian citizen first. Mm-hmm. When I will be an Australian citizen, I can process their claims or process mm-hmm. their applications. Ishmael, how did the Mars or the Migrant and Refugee Resettlement Services assist you when you moved to Australia? When I moved to Australia and after when I, when I got my permanent residency, uh, they helped me with long-term and short-term accommodation. They find me accommodation and they assist families, the individuals, by showing how to get access to buses. Uh, they help the young migrants or refugees in different activities like with their studies. They have some English programs because English is the first barrier for the refugees. Mm-hmm. So they helped us with the English programs. They do boating activities like mm-hmm. soccer. And also they have some driving uh, classes. So young refugees, they can, they can learn how to drive the migrant refugee resettlement services. So very important day-to-day skills to live in a community. Um, it, is, it is also a very good opportunity for the local people, for the local Aussies. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people, uh, they really want to uh, meet uh, refugees or migrants from different countries, but they have, uh, they have no opportunities. Mm-hmm. But Mars is providing opportunities for locals, for Aussies, to come along and uh, uh, to teach young students English. And this is a very good uh, opportunity for locals to come and interact with the refugees and to listen to their uh, feelings, to, to see what mm. they think about Australia. It's Do a really good uh, platform for, mm. the, for locals as well. Do you still have any contact with people, Australians or Aussies, as you call them, that you met through Mars? Yes, I have a huge contact with the locals. Mm. Uh, I met with them. And how important is that to you now? It is really important because uh, I'm I'm in a tertiary studies, and it is very hard for me to to do my assignments all alone, mm. like perfectly. I, whenever I feel any help, I go to, to those uh, people, I met them, mm-hmm. and they help me with my studies, with my assignments, yeah. So where do you live now, and what are you doing? Uh, I live in, in Brandon. It's uh, ACT housing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I do communication in journalism at University of Canberra. I've just uh, passed my second semester of second year. Congratulations. Thank you so much. How does it feel being in Australia, studying at university? Uh, it feels awesome, I can say. Um, it's it's kind of honour a country, a wonderful country is giving a privilege for me. It, it provided a privilege for me to study higher and uh, to get a degree. It it, it feels really uh, awesome for me that mm. now I'm in a mainstream University of Canberra studying with locals and taxes paying my fee. That's wonderful. Mm. Ishmael, thank you so much for your time and sharing your story today. I appreciate um, how difficult that must be for you to revisit some of those uh, questions. And I would uh, really like to invite you onto the show as you progress through your uh, degree and also through your life here in Canberra. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me in your program. Thanks, Ishmael. You're listening to Subject ACT on 2XXFM 98.3. That was Megan Chisholm, a Canberra-based humanitarian aid worker who describes the plight of those enduring protracted conflict and fleeing for their lives, particularly the Syrian crisis. I also spoke with Hazara refugee now living in Canberra, Ishmael Hussani, who shared his personal story as asylum seeker to refugee, now living and studying in Canberra. Coming up next, we hear the voice of our youth, Secretary of Australian National University's VGEN Society, Zoe Knight, an advocate of international aid, intending on mobilising local interest and political change. You're listening to 2XXFM 98.3 on Subject ACT for local and current affairs. I'm Becca Posterino. This morning we're talking to Zoe Knight, the Secretary of the ANU VGEN Society. She's also involved in the state team of VGEN and she's also a part of the Coalition for the Campaign for Australian Aid, which recently had a summit in Sydney. Welcome to the program. Hi, Becca. Uh, Thank you so much for having me here. Just to mention, $200 million was slashed from foreign aid, whether that really represents Australia. How do you feel about that? Yeah, sure. So um, so the Campaign for Australian Aid is a campaign which focuses on, you know, all these different coalitions, this coalition of different organisations, individuals and communities coming together. There's actually over 60 groups which are represented in the coalition. And our aim is actually just to battle the you know decrease in Australian aid which is given to our neighbours. The campaign's been going since February of 2015. You know currently we have a GNI percentage of 0.22 which is given towards Australian aid which really is nothing. I mean the campaign our main goal is really to raise that up to what the UN hopes to see which is 0.7% GNI. That really is the goal. Like you said the big slashes which have been happening and which have been given to the campaign and the Australian aid budget. Honestly as, as a, someone who's from the youth and you know we are the future of Australia. We're the few members of our region who are going to be seeing what the consequences are of these slashes towards the budget. And, you know, all we really want is to ensure that our region becomes as prosperous and, you know, really grows in its economy, in its in its society, in its community, 
All we want really is to provide our region with the same opportunities which we can give our own Australians. Would you please share some of your insights with your recent interview with Andrew Lee? We spoke briefly just before off air with Minister Lee's involvement for advocacy and foreign aid. Can you share some of the highlights from your recent interview with him? So the Campaign for Australian Aid came up with this amazing idea where we would get different youth people from around the country, different organisations who were part of the coalition to go and see their members of parliament. We sat down for about 10 to 15 minutes and he really just showed us that he is so passionate about Australian aid. Gave us an insight in the, the work that he used to do volunteering when he was our age. He actually was fantastic in the way that he gave us a lot of advice as to the way that we could run our youth movement through the university. He gave us a lot of tips and things that we could do. And one thing he really emphasised is when we asked him about what Labour would do if they were, you know, to get into, you know, win the election this year and sort of get more representation in the government. He said that they really were going to walk, you know, work towards increasing Australian aid, mm-hmm. the budget. You know, right now it is at 0.22% GNI. A couple of years ago, it was at 0.35%. And the fact that it's just gone down and down is just really not a representation of what the Australians mm-hmm. want to see. You know, you go out and you ask people, you know, how much money do you think we give overseas? You know, what percentage of our GNI do you think goes to Australian budget? And they go, oh, you know, 5%, 10%. And we go, oh, we, we really wish that was true, but it's actually less than 1%. So just for the listeners, G&I, can you break that down? Yep, so it's a gro- uh, the gross national income. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's so just, different from GDP? It is different from GDP. Um, so it looks at sort of the income of um, the Australians um, as well as like the tax. So when you think about how much money is taken from your pocket, from the taxes and put towards Australian aid, it's really not as much as you would hope to see mm. go towards mm. aid, um, Australian aid budget. You know, all this tax we're paying every year, you think, oh, you know, we're really helping people. This is going towards things that really matter. But mm. when you see the numbers, it really doesn't represent what the Australians mm. hope to see. And particularly with yourself as a youth looking into a future, perhaps in this space, mm-hmm. it's disconcerting. Uh, it really is. You know, I sort of grew up experiencing all these different well I, I traveled quite a lot it's, when I was a child which I was really lucky to see mm. um, I went to different communities and my parents always made sure that I saw you know that we would stay in really beautiful hotels see the beautiful scenes but mum always made sure that we went and saw you know saw the other side of mm. society got to see a balance of what life was really like and when I came to Australia I thought wow this country is amazing we have so much wealth here we're mm. so prosperous we're so lucky to have all these amazing opportunities but then as I started to get older and I started you know to really listen to the news and sort of understand what is going on you know it really hits you that not everyone has the same opportunities and you know Australia is such a big player and we have such a big role in the region and we really should be helping it's almost a responsibility that we have to really help our neighbours in the region those people who think well you know we really should be focusing on Australia and the domestic side and everything I go well you know considering we only give 0.22 percent you know I mean, that's what it will be by 2017, 2018, 0.22% of our GNI. We really are doing a lot for the domestic part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we can give a bit more. We really mm-hmm. could. And, you know, in the future, any any aid which we do give to our neighbours in the region, we really will be seeing sort of benefits for Australia mm-hmm. as well. As our neighbours become more prosperous and they develop more, really will show in Australia with our mm-hmm. economic ties with those countries. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. really also just about thinking... Um, for those of for those listeners who who have children or you know who have younger you know siblings thinking about well you know in Australia in 20 years time when they've sort of grown up and they've had their opportunities they're going to be you know really lucky to be living these amazing lives but you mm. think about the children and the families who are in countries which are so close to what's even countries like you know Papua New Guinea and Indonesia they're so close yet their lives are so different mm. you know they grow up a lot of them don't have stable communities and mm-hmm. stable houses to live so many people are unemployed living in poverty and there's just 
you know, there's really so much we could do to help them out. Mm. Even just a couple of dollars a year from every sort of person in Australia could do so much, provide an education. $450, which we could easily raise in our community, can actually send a child to school for a year in most countries. Investing in social capital. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's all worth it in the long run. The campaign for Australian aid, which uh, you mentioned over 70 people attended in Sydney last weekend, uh, what were some of the issues discussed and what inspired you about this forum? So this was an amazing opportunity. We had youth from all the different coalitions coming together. We had you know, representation from Oak Tree, Oxfam, VGen. We got the opportunity to meet so many people who shared the same passion as us. The things discussed at the summit, a lot of it was training because it is such a big year in terms of the election. We all really need to get our heads around you. Know, how can we really reach government? How can we reach out to our MPs? How can we make a difference this year? So was this advocacy and campaign training? That's really what it was focused, focused around. It was sort of updating everyone on where the campaign was going this year. We had a lot of sessions focusing on what we could do as activists, such as you know door knocking, writing to our MPs, getting the community involved. A lot of what we hope to do is to really go out into our electorates. I mean, we represent the Eden Minara electorate, which mm-hmm. is so close to us. It's such a huge region, mm. but not many people actually know about the campaign for Australian aid. And that's something we really want to change, especially in those rural towns. You know, so many people that have the opportunity to engage with the campaign and really address their members of parliament. And that's for anyone who is really interested. We really hope that you sign up. You go to australianaid.org. And if you swipe down to the bottom, you can sign up to the campaign for Australian aid get involved with your electorate team and really change the world. It's just great to see that you're taking a cause and running with it. I'm sure there's a lot of other things that you could be doing in your own time, but it's a real inspiration to many young people, I'm sure. So all the best and I hope to see more of you in the future. Thank you very much, Becca. It's been absolutely amazing to be able to come in here and talk about the issue. Thanks for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to Local Current Affairs Program Subject ACT on 98.3 XFM. That was Secretary of Australian National University's VGEN Society, Zoe Knight, advocating for change regarding international aid funding in Australia. And due to technical problems last week, 2XXFM must apologise to listeners as we miss Robert G's program with Roxanne Missingham, Australian National University's librarian, and Vanessa Little, Head of Libraries ACT, which we will air again tomorrow. Thanks for your company today. Coming up next, Community Broadcast Network's All the Best. You've been listening to Subject ACT, 2XXFM 98.3. I'm Becca Posterino. Enjoy your day.